Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So I researched this episode in the middle of summer in the middle of a week plus of high temperatures above 90 degrees, which, yes, I know that is not terribly hot everywhere. Please do not email us with weather one-upmanship. <laughs> Emailing us in solidarity about how you are also hot is fine. Uh, yeah, thanks to various aspects of my apartment, 90 degrees outside is really unbearably hot inside. Uh, and I've also done a run of researching very dour episodes lately. So... I wish it were colder has combined with I wish these episodes weren't so devastating to form today's subject, which is about the time that Popsicle and Good Humor could not stop suing one another about who got to make which frozen treats on sticks. (laughs) I love hot weather, so I do not wish it was colder. Universe, don't listen to Tracy. Uh, but first, we are going to start with the charming origin stories of the two treats in question, both of which have a hefty dose of wholesomeness and Americana. So first, we're going to talk about popsicles. So keep in mind, frozen treats themselves have been around a lot longer than this. And you can listen to our 2013 episode on the history of ice cream if you want those details. To add to that, a lot of origin stories of famous iconic foods have become really romanticized and have kind of an apocryphal element to them. And that is the case with this one, too, because the details vary a lot depending on who is telling the story. But the basics are, in 1905, Frank Epperson mixed soda powder and water and left it outside his Oakland, California home with the wooden stirrer still in it overnight. When he found it in the morning, it was frozen. So that is a lot of serendipity happening all at once because it very, very rarely gets below freezing in Oakland, California. And Frank ate this frozen soda water on a stick and behold, it was delicious. And he named it the Epsicle, you know, like Epperson plus Icicle. He was at this point 11 and like an 11 year old might be expected to do. He made more of these and he started selling them to his neighbors. This really wasn't much more than a lemonade stand-esque hobby until Epperson was a grown man who was making a living in real estate. In 1922, he made some of his frozen treats for a fireman's ball. And at some point, uh, reportedly on the advice of his children, Epperson also changed the name from Epsicle to Popsicle. This time it combined Icicle with what his children were calling him, which was Pop. In 1923, Epperson teamed up with employees of Low Movie Company and launched Popsicle Company. This company started selling popsicles at Neptune Beach, which was a waterfront amusement park near where Epperson lived in California. And soon he was licensing popsicles to be sold at other amusement parks as well. On June 11, 1924, he applied for a patent for his invention, which was granted on August 19th of that year. The patent is for a, quote, frozen confectionery. His invention, according to the patent, improved on other frozen confectionery in that you could eat it without using a utensil and without contaminating it with your hands. Plus, it was easy to make without a lot of complicated or hard to sanitize equipment. To make a popsicle, according to the patent, quote, 
Small containers, which may be ordinary test tubes, are charged with the liquid syrup from which the confection is frozen, and the handle sticks are inserted therein and pressed down into contact with the bottoms of the containers to overcome the buoyant effect of the liquid. The syrup is then subjected to intense refrigeration so that it is frozen solid within a few minutes. The test tube, confection, and stick are thus frozen together into a rigid mass, from which the test tube container is removed by drawing outward on the handle after slightly loosening the container from the confection. The patent also advises using a sapless, tasteless, porous wood for the stick so that the syrup freezes into it and the stick doesn't just slide right out when you pull it. Which I know happens to me sometimes when using plastic popsicle mold. (laughs) So only a couple of months after this patent was granted, Epperson was low on money and he sold all of his patent rights to Popsicle Corporation, which carried on expanding the pop business without him. At about this same time, a business called Citrus Product Company was also selling frozen flavored water pops. They called them frozen suckers, which were marketed as an alternative to soft drinks. This may sound counterintuitive. You know how if you suck on an ice pop, you can suck all the flavored syrup out of it and just be left with ice? That is probably the worst thing about popsicles. But in the 1920s, this was actually a selling point. Pops were sold as drinks that had been in solid form. I was totally missing this nuance until I read the actual, like, judge's ruling in one of these lawsuits. And then I was like, wait, wait a minute. You're supposed to suck on it until all the syrup comes out and you're left with just a stick of ice because I have always deliberately not eaten them that way because that bothered me as a child to have this chunk of flavorless ice left over. So, in 1925, Joe Lowe of the eponymous Joe Lowe Corporation, or Joe Loco, wanted to duplicate the success of Citrus Products' solid beverages Joe Loco was a major supplier to bakers and confectioners, and it did a lot of business selling ingredients to the ice cream industry. So Joe Lowe thought he could combine his existing business network with the patent that he knew that Popsicle Corporation had and sell lots of frozen pops. So Joe Lowe went to Popsicle Corporation and eventually became its sales agent. And that is the business arrangement that was in place when Popsicle eventually faced off against Good Humor Bars. So now for that story. Good Humor Bars were the invention of Harry Burt of Youngstown, Ohio. Burt started off making candy, and one of his first creations was the Jolly Boy Sucker, which was basically a lollipop. In 1920, he figured out how to make a chocolate coating that would stick to ice cream and solidify. Bless you, Harry Burt. He gave his daughter, Ruth, some ice cream coated with this shell. And she liked it, but she thought it was too messy. Burt's son, Harry Jr., suggested using the sticks from the the Jolly Boy Suckers to make an ice cream bar coated with chocolate on a stick. This became the Good Humor Bar. And soon, Burt was selling these bars from trucks and carts that were equipped with freezers and bells. And they were driven by men in clean white uniforms who tipped their hats at ladies and saluted gentlemen. These good humor men became a summertime staple in the United States from the 1920s until the 1970s. Harry Burt also made uniform molds and recipe standards so that he could work with different manufacturers to churn out the bars while ensuring that people would get a consistent product no matter where they purchased it from. This is how a lot of businesses work today, but this was a relatively new idea at this point. Burt also applied for his own patent. 
It was called Process of Making Frozen Confections, and he applied for it on January 30th, 1922. It was granted to him on October 9th, 1923, reportedly after he took a bunch of good humor bars to the patent office, but I couldn't find substantiation for that. Bird's patent describes making a confection that has a, quote, frozen body portion or heart, quote, which starts off soft or fluid, but is then hardened by refrigeration. Uh, here's how it describes this process, quote, to this end, a handle member, which may or may not be of an edible substance, is suitably attached to the frozen body portion and utilized in the subsequent operations incident to the manufacture of the confection, as well as by the ultimate consumer when eating the confection. I.e., I put a stick in it. (laughs) (laughs) Both of these patents are in their own way charming, but I find the popsicle one just to be written in a more delightful way than the good humor one. <laughs> I think most patents often come off that way because they, they're trying to cover their bases and make sure everything is accounted for. And sometimes the language gets very stilted and quite, as you said, charming. Uh, the process for making a good humor bar differed a little from the popsicle. So the popsicle starts with liquid in a test tube, a stick stuck in, and the whole thing frozen. And then it's pulled out essentially against a vacuum after some jostling. The process of making a good humor bar starts with a partially frozen ice cream in a container, which the stick goes into. There's ideally a hole in the bottom of the container, which may be covered temporarily, which allows the air to come in when you remove the bar, making that step easier. And then it's frozen the rest of the way, removed from the container, and coated with an edible coating that solidifies. So there are definitely some similarities in these two patents. Both the good humor and popsicle patents tout the virtues of not having to touch the product with your unsanitary gross hands. They also both have a combination of sticks and vessels and frozen deliciousness. There are differences, though, as well. Popsicles at this point were mostly fruit-flavored waters and syrups, while Good Humor bars were, obviously, ice cream. Popsicles were thought of as solid beverages, and Good Humor bars were desserts. And popsicles were shaped basically like a cylinder, while Good Humor bars were more like a rectangle. So the typical consumer could immediately figure out the difference between a popsicle and a Good Humor bar, without really having to think about which was which. I'm imagining the person holding one of each and going, I can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) However, these two companies had some legal bones to pick, and we're going to talk about those after we have a brief sponsor break. So although Good Humor and Popsicle did eventually face off against one another in court, their first legal battles were actually against other companies. There was a lot of ice cream innovation going on around the turn of the 20th century. Ice cream cones debuted at the very end of the 1800s, and waffle cones came on the scene just after that. Eskimo pies came out in 1922, and there were lots of different companies tinkering with various other frozen concoctions. However, when it came to frozen treats on sticks, Harry Burt really thought his patent covered all of them. It described a process of making a frozen treat on a stick, not a product made from that process. So regardless of exactly what that end product looked and tasted like, he considered the act of making it his own invention. Bert soon filed suit against Citrus Products of Frozen Sucker fame, who we talked about before the break. 
Originally, these two businesses were actually on pretty good terms. Citrus products did not think that their frozen suckers were patentable. They didn't really consider it to be unique enough to require or uh, lead to a patent. But since Harry Bird did have a patent, it thought it had better cover all of its bases by working out a licensing agreement. However, the two companies couldn't agree on terms after repeated attempts. And on August 24th, 1925, Burt filed suit against Citrus Products, claiming patent infringement and unfair competition in trade. Citrus Products intended to take this suit to trial, hoping that the court would set some limits on what Burt's patents did or did not cover. Burt himself claimed that it was, quote, so broad that it is impossible to make the suckers without infringing the same. But in 1926, at Burt's request, the suit was dismissed. Meanwhile, Popsicle Corporation was waging its own legal battles against other companies that were making frozen pops on sticks. First came Cold Cake Company in New Jersey and MB Ice Cream Company in Texas in 1924. All of these companies had non-standard spelling. (laughs) Cold Cake Company was spelled with K's instead of C's for cold and cake. An MB ice cream company, ice is spelled I-S-E, and cream is spelled K-R-E-A-M. A court upheld Popsicle's patent on November 20th of that year, and the following year it filed suit against some more companies, including several Philadelphia businesses and Horn Ice Cream Company of Maryland and Robert Bayer of New York, neither of which is spelled weirdly at all. <laughs> it turned out that both Horn Ice Cream and MB Ice Cream were affiliated with Citrus Products. Citrus Products said it was actually MB Ice Cream that developed the frozen sucker in the first place. So at this point, both Harry Burt and Popsicle Corporation had, in one way or another, sued Citrus Products. While Burt eventually had his suit dismissed, Popsicle and Citrus settled out of court. Then in February of 1925, the two major players in our story finally faced off in court against each other when Burt filed suit against Popsicle Corporation in the U.S. District Court of Southern New York. That October, the two companies reached a legal agreement together. In this agreement, uh, they agreed not to sue each other anymore. Popsicle Company got the rights to make cylindrical frozen things on sticks out of syrups, water, ice, and sherbets. And Bert got to make rectangular frozen things on sticks out of ice creams and frozen custards. This cut citrus products out of the frozen pop game. So in 1927, it worked out a deal to join Joe Loco in acting as Popsicle's agent. So we wound up with, in the syrupy, fruity, frozen cylinder camp, Joe Loco, Citrus Products, and Popsicle Company working together, and in the rectangular ice cream bar on stick camp, good humor. These businesses spent the next several years making their specified varieties of frozen treats. That is, until Popsicle wanted to make its products creamier. You can imagine that might cause a problem, and we are going to talk about that after we have a brief word from a sponsor. Harry Burt, unfortunately, did not get to see much of his company's success after its first round of legal issues with Popsicle were resolved. He died in 1926 and left his business to his wife, Cora. She sold basically everything related to the good humor business except for the Popsicle licensing to Midland Food Products Company, which changed its name to Good Humor Corporation. Cora Burt actually later remarried and became Cora Burt Roller, and Good Humor was later sold to MJ Meehan. But then came another big change, and that was the Great Depression. 
Because they were made of frozen waters and syrups, popsicles were really pretty cheap to make. Good humor bars, on the other hand, started with ice cream, which was just more expensive. So good humor bars sold for 10 cents a piece, and popsicles could go for half as much. When financial times got tough, people who couldn't afford 10 cents for a good humor bar might be able to pay half as much for a popsicle. According to its ad campaigns, more than 200 million popsicles were sold in 1931 alone. Eventually, though, some of Popsicle's licensees wanted to be able to sell some kind of cheap competitor to good humor bars. Dairy prices were falling, which made the idea more feasible feasible than it had been when good humor bars were first developed. So in the fall of 1931, Popsicle, Joe Loco, and Citrus Products all got together and approached good humor with a proposed revision to their 1925 agreement. This trio of companies wanted to manufacture products that more resembled ice cream, but contained less than 4.5% butterfat, also known as milk fat. Good Humor would retain the rights to making products that contained more milk fat than that. The Popsicle Joe Loco Citrus Alliance thought it had a strong case here, since the 1925 agreement specified that Popsicle could make sherbet-based products. Today, sherbets are made with about 1 to 3% milk fat, and frozen dessert manufacturers generally agree that sherbets do include milk fat. But in 1931, there wasn't a legal definition, or even a working industry definition, for what sherbets actually were. And a lot of people use the term synonymously with sorbet, which is a frozen fruity dessert, which generally includes no more than a trace of dairy. So the popsicle argument was, we can make these dairy-based bars based on our original licensing agreement because that says we can make frozen treats out of sherbet. But Good Humor's counter-argument was, that's not what sherbet means, and we are the only ones who can make dairy-based ice cream bars on sticks. Of course, Good Humor was also protecting its own interests here. It was on the verge of launching its own less milk-fatty version of the Good Humor bar called the Cheerio bar, which would cost five cents and be more like a frozen ice milk bar than a frozen ice cream bar. The result of this attempted agreement was that Popsicle just went ahead and gave its licensees permission to start making a so-called milk Popsicle, regardless of how the Good Humor company felt about it. The milk popsicle had 4.48% butterfat, so it was barely under the line that it had presented to Good Humor as the upper threshold for products it was interested in making. The milk popsicle also departed from the cylindrical shape that had been outlined in those first popsicle patents. Instead, the milk popsicle was shaped more like a keystone. Unsurprisingly, Good Humor took Popsicle to court, claiming infringement on two fronts. First for making a Popsicle with milk in it, and then for making a rectangular Popsicle. When it came to presenting their evidence in court, the heart of the two companies' arguments was exactly how you define sherbet. They pulled in definitions from dictionaries, they talked to ice cream industry experts, and also 32 different state regulators on how you defined ice cream in different states. But in the end, none of that really mattered, and Judge John J. Neild based his ruling on something else entirely, what the two companies believed when they had signed their agreement in the first place. He pointed out that Popsicle had been making its products with water-based mixtures, not milk-based mixtures, for six years with no problems. He didn't get into the issue of the shape of the bar at all. Judge Neild issued an injunction against the milk Popsicle on May 27th of 1932. If you read his... His court ruling, 
his tone is basically, are you too serious? You've been <laughs> fine for six years, and now you are deliberately doing this thing that's obviously not what you've been doing. Go to your room. Like, Didn't we solve this problem six years ago? <laughs> so... Uh, the judge did not resolve the differences between good humor and popsicle, and both of them appealed each for different reasons. Good humor wanted the court also to find that the milk popsicle was a rectangular shape, and that was a problem. Popsicle wanted the court to find that their definition of sherbet was legitimate. I love this. And the thing is, I know that when you're talking about this on like the scale of big business, this is a very real and serious battle. But just the idea of someone putting so much money and effort and research into arguing over what sherbet is delights well, and, and makes me giggle. The fact that they got expert testimony from 32 <laughs> different state, state regulators about what sherbet is, that sounds like the most pedantic food conversation ever in a court of law. Which I actually would love to read through the whole thing at some point. But uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed Judge Neal's ruling, still declining to weigh in on what sherbet is or how the milk popsicle was shaped. However, before the court had a chance to actually render this opinion, Good Humor and Popsicle signed a new agreement. On April 7th of 1933, the two companies agreed to basically do what they'd been doing for six years, making popsicles out of mostly water or syrup and making good humor bars out of dairy. This fortunately, I guess, depending on whose side you're on, was not a total loss for Popsicle. Joe Lowe suggested that Popsicle use this keystone-shaped mold to create a Popsicle with two sticks in it, which could be split and shared. That would let customers get more of their out of their Great Depression dollars by basically giving them two popsicles for every one. And as a side note, that two-stick version went off the market in the mid-1980s, and it was replaced with a one-stick version of roughly the same size. As hilariously reported in the New York Times, quote, small children, it seemed, couldn't lick fast enough in alternating sequences to keep one or the other stick from dripping. This meant that children were getting two popsicles rather than sharing them with a friend or sibling, or they were just eating them without breaking them apart first. There's a similarly exasperated sounding quote in this uh, in this New York Times article that talks to one of the popsicle executives and is like, hey, doesn't this mean you all aren't in favor of sharing? Uh, and he has a similarly, are you kidding me kind of tone and talks about how like the weight of the two stick popsicle was this much. But each of the single stick popsicles that's replacing it is this much. So it's basically the same thing, just already broken in half for you. (laughs) So in our last extremely silly twist, MJ Meehan sold good humor to the Thomas J. Lipton Company, a division of Unilever in 1961. Then... Unilever bought the Popsicle brand in 1989, six years after the death of its inventor, Frank Epperson. So now these two former adversaries who went to court repeatedly to decide who got to make what out of frozen stuff on sticks are now both part of the same business. (laughs) Oh, Popsicles and deliciousness. It's your summer break. Maybe the (laughs) Popsicle people will be here today and I can go have a Popsicle after this. Well, and that's another thing that I learned while researching this. If uh, we're talking about King of Pops, which is an Atlanta um, 
artisanal, delicious pop creator. Popsicle is still a trademark. So that is why when you go to their website, everything is described as pops and not as popsicles. I didn't know this. Apparently Unilever sometimes will aggressively defend its popsicle trademark. Well, and it is funny because I think a lot of people, it's kind of like that Kleenex thing where people call all tissues Kleenex, where most people call all frozen treats that are not dairy, specifically Mm -hmm. on sticks, popsicles, but that is a trademark name. Do you also have a little bit of listener mail for us to enjoy? I do, and it's it's uh, slightly more serious than this episode has been today. I felt like this was like the summer break frozen treat, let's have class outside episode. Woo! Uh... This is from Sumner, and Sumner says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I've been listening to the podcast for several years now, but haven't had a reason to write in until now. I just finished listening to the Abome Palace episode. When you brought up the Tumblr post, which did not mention the Abome Palace's connection to slavery, it reminded me of what a friend told me about a recent trip to Portugal. This friend went there with a a few Brazilian friends. While touring cathedrals and palaces in Portugal, he noticed a friction develop between the Brazilians and the Portuguese tour guide. In the official tour narrative, the buildings were symbols of the pride of the Portuguese empire. For the Brazilians, they were symbols of colonial oppression. The Brazilians would frequently ask the tour guide how the building they were touring was funded and where the building materials came from. In many cases, none of the tour guides knew the exact details, but it made my friend really change his perspective on the beautiful art he was seeing. Especially when looking at the masterpieces of European architecture and art, we seem to gloss over their connections to colonialism and slavery. Would the masterpieces of the 16th and 17th century architecture and art exist if many of their commissioners, nobles, royals, merchants were not uh, profiting from colonial trade? Would the abundance of gold and silver in Latin American and Iberian art from the so-called Age of Discovery exist without the conquest of the Americas and the influx of precious metals from Mexico and Peru? Although I think you're both quite right in saying that the Abome Palace should be mentioned in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, I also think that we should take it upon ourselves to rethink art and architecture we do not immediately associate with colonialism and the slave trade. I want to thank you both for giving me something engaging and educational to learn when I'm commuting to and from school. Thank you so much, Sumner. That is a totally valid uh, point, and it is a point that there have been some really interesting books uh, that have come out lately that have kind of traced the ongoing uh, legacy of slavery and in institutions that people haven't necessarily associated with slavery. Um, there was one that came out a couple of years ago that was called Ebony and Ivy, which was about uh, Ivy League colleges, which are almost exclusively in like New England and other northern parts of the United States, uh, and how... They A lot of them were initially built mostly on slave labor, which is not really discussed and not really thought about in the context of Ivy League schools very often, Um, which I know there are people who wish we would shut up about slavery. But I think until uh, until it becomes second nature to think about the legacies that that created these great buildings and great works of art and things that have lasted for hundreds of years that were really built on exploiting the other other people, I think that will be something that we will continue to talk about on the podcast on, on a regular basis. So thank you again, um, Sumner, for writing to us about that. 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store. It is at MissedInHistory.spreadshirt.com. We have some cool new stuff in there. If you go to our Spreadshirt store and there is something that you wish we had, send us a note because we have an awesome, uh, awesome office manager named Tamika who is helping manage our store for us. And we can send her a note and say, Tamika, can we get this? And often the answer is yes. And very promptly, we have that in the store. It's pretty great. Uh, so if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word Popsicle in the search bar. You'll find 10 of history's happiest accidents. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find an archive of every episode we've ever done and show notes and other cool stuff like that. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>